0: Welkom bij het congresjournaal van het Nederlandse Zijdshuis van Hematologie. In deze podcastserie brengen wij samen met toonaangevende opinieleiders de highlights van internationale medische congressen direct naar uw spreekkamer. In deze episode, we talk with Dr. George Goshwa from Yale New Haven Hospital about COVID-19-associated coagulopathy. Stay tuned to be updated within the next 10 minutes and benefit from this regarding the clinical management of your patients. Good day, Dr. Goshua. Welcome to this uh, podcast. So during this COVID uh, pandemic that we are currently all suffering from, uh, you evaluated COVID-19 associated coagulopathy. Can you shortly explain uh, what this is, this COVID-19 associated coagulopathy?
1: Thank you for having me on the show, first and foremost. And for all the listeners, I want to say thank you for your time. Hopefully the next few minutes are worth your time. With regards to COVID-19 associated coagulopathy, we do know that there are several laboratory derangements and then clinical findings that we see. And we do also know that on the mechanism front, uh, there's still much more research to be done. With regards specifically to the laboratory derangements, uh, the most typical ones are significantly increased D-dimer levels significantly increased fibrinogen, mostly normal or sometimes increased prothrombin times, and finally mostly normal or sometimes decreased platelet counts. The disease has a lot of uh, variability in the sense that the thrombotic complications can include all of um, macro and microvascular thrombosis, so venous thromboembolism, microvascular thrombosis has been shown on autopsy studies, and of course also arterial occlusion.
0: And what was the rationale behind studying this during this coronavirus pandemic?
1: Well, we knew from our Chinese colleagues, both from their publications and then in an opportunity to speak with them early before the pandemic really hit at least our part of the United States. And we're here in Connecticut at the Yale University School of Medicine in New Haven, Connecticut. We had a little bit of lead time and we knew that this coagulopathy didn't harbor. Uh, the typical findings that we would see, let's say, in disseminated intravascular coagulation, which a lot of the early publications talked about. And beyond that, our Chinese colleagues also on a phone call spoke with us about the end stages of this disease, having some kind of ischemic component, specifically a digital ischemic component uh, that made us think that there's something unique happening here. So the rationale for us is we wanted to understand Exactly what the mechanism is, and given the fact that it can do so many different things, venous thromboembolism, arterial occlusion, microvascular thrombosis, uh, we theorize that the mechanism must be multifactorial.
0: What study design was used in order to examine this mechanism?
1: It was a cross-sectional study design we had one blood draw at one point in time for each patient. We wanted to take a look at the extremes of the phenotype, meaning we wanted to see the sickest of the sick patients that were hospitalized with the SARS-CoV-2 virus, with COVID-19 disease. And then of those who were less sick, but still hospitalized, we wanted to be able to examine them. And so what we did is we took as much as possible, the sickest patients in that ICU, the vast majority of them intubated. And then on the medical floor, patients who needed minimal oxygen requirements. And universally, that was three liters or less of oxygen via nasal cannula. And beyond that, we just proceeded with random sampling of those patients because the hospital did peak. On April 21st, we peaked at 450 patients hospitalized at the same time with COVID-19. And so from those, we ended up having 68 total patients randomly selected beyond trying to select the sickest and the less sick. And there were 48 in the ICU arm and uh, 20 in the non-ICU arm.
0: And regarding the study population, were all these patients tested positively for COVID-19?
1: Oh, yes, they were all tested positively. Thank you for mentioning that Uh, via PCR.
0: And during the 25th uh, EHA Congress, you presented the main findings. Uh, What were these findings?
1: So there was a set of them. Um, Some of the the most significant ones, um, I guess I can start from the top. Uh, There's a couple of different ways to think about it. But we were trying essentially to take a look at everything from primary hemostasis, where you have some endothelial injury, you have platelet aggregation and adhesion, and as a domino cascade, it builds into this tsunami that is the coagulation cascade and the use of your coagulation factors. And finally, the fibrinolytic system, which is responsible for lysing these clots. So some of the highlights of our findings for our listeners were both significantly elevated D-dimers, which we know is the case in these patients, but both in the non-ICU and the ICU settings, thrombin antithrombin level is similarly significantly elevated even on the patient, in the patients on the floor. Those two were significantly correlated. Um, And so for that part of the findings, uh, we were thinking that perhaps the source of the high D-dimer in this coagulopathy may be an augmentation of the coagulation cascade. We also looked at the endogenous anticoagulants to prove the concept again that this is different from disseminated intravascular coagulation, which was the focus of many early publications and at the time that we were doing this study. And all of antithrombin, protein C and S were largely preserved in both the non-ICU and the ICU patients. Fibonolytic enzyme alpha-2 antiplasmin was largely preserved as well, but universally PI one levels, plasminogen activator inhibitor one were high. Lysis-30 time was also normal in 96% of the ICU patients. And finally, as evidence of endotheliopathy, notably before patients become severely ill, we had shown that von Willebrand factor and factor VIII levels were elevated not only in the ICU setting, which had been shown before, but also significantly elevated in the non-ICU setting as well. And beyond that, we looked at specific endothelial cell markers like soluble thrombomodulin Specific platelet uh, activation markers like soluble CD40 ligand. And finally, an element of both platelet activation and endothelial cell injury with elevated uh, soluble P selectin levels.
0: So, all taken together, what can be concluded from these findings?
1: So, in in order, building from your endothelial uh, cell injury, and again, we're not sure if it's directly the viral invasion. We know the virus can invade the endothelial cells. There's no question about that. That's been shown. Is that what is setting off uh, the endothelial injury or is the hyperinflammatory response to the virus? That part we're not sure about, but what we do know is that this begins with some significant component of both endotheliopathy and platelet activation. We know that there is an element of an augmented coagulation cascade as shown by the increased thrombin antithrombin levels we know this is also of course not DIC because there's a preserved natural anticoagulants and i should say too on that point of course in the critically ill setting uh, and especially in the terminal phases of this disease some patients a small minority of them can proceed to DIC but this would be for other reasons like bacterial sepsis or fungal infection for example and finally We show evidence of inhibition, at least of classical fibrinolysis. And so these taken as a whole show that this is a multifactorial process uh, that starts from the beginning with primary hemostasis derangements to secondary hemostasis derangements to fibrinolytic system derangements. And in sum, that endotheliopathy is a central feature of progression to critical illness in COVID-19.
0: As this is a pandemic, the whole world is watching whenever any COVID-associated research is being done. So what can other countries learn from this?
1: I think, as you mentioned, this is a virus and a disease that has afflicted all of us all over the world. Uh, and more than ever, scientific progress and scientific breakthroughs are dependent on collaboration, both within an institution and then interinstitutionally as well. In a good way, there is really no further, or should be at least, no further country boundaries. We have, most recently, some news that is to be lauded from the United Kingdom about corticosteroids, but we have to be mindful of the fact, too, that we need to see the full manuscript there, for example. With regards to this, this research, we still need to fully characterize the inhibition of classical fibrinolysis, and this is something that we're working on we need to be able to show these findings in a bigger cohort of patients. And importantly, we need to consider the therapeutic implications of these findings. And this is, again, where the entire community all over the world should hopefully be able to come together to study these in clinical trials. So specifically, we know that if there is endotheliopathy and that there is platelet activation, there is going to be some use for endothelial cell modifying agents Uh, antiplatelet agents, but this needs to be studied in prospective clinical trials. And then the same is true, and I know the studies are ongoing with uh, anticoagulation. We know that there is benefit to prophylactic anticoagulation. This has been shown from our colleagues in China, from our colleagues in Europe, and from our colleagues in New York City. But prophylactic anticoagulation, as compared to no anticoagulation, There's a survival benefit there, but what about intermediate and full-dose anticoagulation? For now, we don't know the efficacy uh, or the safety profile thereof, and certainly that is another modality uh, that we need to be thinking about. And finally, a lot of research is going into modulating the inflammatory pathways. And in the very beginning, uh, as I mentioned that there seems to be an inflammatory injury that is happening to these endothelial cells, then this is work that's been shown by others that there's histopathologic changes consistent with endotheliitis. So can we affect something upstream, whether it's a cytokine, whether it's a complement, and we know there's complement deposition early on in this disease as well, and of course also uh, platelets in the cells.
0: And what are the next steps from your study group regarding this?
1: So I think the important things for us is uh, to complete the characterization specifically of uh, what is happening to the fibrinolytic system. Uh, So that is something that we're looking at now. Beyond this, what we want to do and what we are doing is to look at serial samples. As you remember, I mentioned that this was a cross-sectional study, an initial attempt um, in an exploratory analysis to understand what may be happening uh, in this disease process. But at this time, we've completed the study of another cohort of patients who were admitted, confirmed to have COVID-19. And then we followed them through their hospitalization with serial blood samples through time. And so we're analyzing those now. And the hope is that we can understand the time course of this disease process by looking at markers that were both mentioned here and markers that I mentioned earlier as well uh, as regards to the complement system. And so the hope is that if we can understand what happens first and what happens in sequence, we can be able to target mechanistically the earliest parts of the pathophysiology of this coagulopathy.
0: Thank you so much for uh, explaining this regarding this very important research uh, subject. And thank you for joining this podcast, Dr. Goshua.
1: Thank you so much. It's a complete pleasure. And again, to all the listeners, hopefully this was a valuable use of your time. And also, please feel free at any time. um, My contact information is on the Yale University School of Medicine website. If you have anything at all uh, that you want to discuss or any questions specifically targeting our research, either myself or my co-authors and my senior, the senior faculty in our department would be more than happy to work together and collaborate.
0: Thanks, Dr. Gashva.
1: Of course. Thank you.
0: We hopen dat deze podcast waardevol voor u was. Check onze website en 2h.nl voor andere interviews in deze serie.